Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 363, Lord Unleashed. So look, we ended on a bit of a high last time with the trial of John Hamden and ship money, and you may well have felt that you have come to the edge of the revolution. The banner is in your hand, or your hand is on your heart to stand by your king. But it is not yet time to step over the precipice. We have some things to do first. We need to talk about religion. Seriously, I know that you've been staring around you, wild-eyed, wondering where on earth the topic of religion has gone to. Well, it's okay. It's back. This week, it is back. But then we also have some other things to discuss. We need to talk about Ireland and Scotland. These are, after all, the wars of three kingdoms as well as the English Revolution. We need to talk about the control of the public sphere during the personal rule. And, of course, we need to get to the long, long-delayed subject of the Great Migration, the growth of colonisation across the Atlantic, the westward enterprise. So... Just to set expectations for those of you desperate to hear the roar of the cannon, the crack of muskets, the cry of, oh, I've just broken a fingernail. I must advise you that there will still be a delay. So this week, it's Lord and Religion. Then there are four episodes on colonisation in the Caribbean and North America. I, yeah, I know, I know. I planned for one tight, clever little episode. You're getting four. Then we'll be back with Scotland, Ireland, the affair of William Prynne, and then into the Bishop Wars at last. OK, I am just managing expectations. That's what we're about here. Anyway, religion then. Before I start, can I please clear something up which might be causing confusion? Might not, but might be. So I went for a boys weekend and Pot said he was really confused about why I was talking about religion in Armenia so much. Now, Pat is usually a bright lad and all. So let me just emphasise Armenia as I'm sure you know, is a country in the Caucasus region. Jacob Arminius was a Dutch theologian with ideas we might call high church. Salvation, not simply by predestination, needing for communion, the importance of the beauty of holiness, that sort of thing. And his followers were called Arminians, with an I rather than an E. Arminian rather than Armenian. Pot suggested I should make it easier for him by using something more colloquial and contemporary. So I had to think about that. Sadly, I think many Puritans might have used, quote, ungodly language when talking about Arminians, but as we'll hear later, they often call them things like ceremony mongers and cathedralists. Shall I call them ceremony mongers? Seems unduly biased, as though I'm taking sides in this. Anyway, any ideas about how I can make it easier, Arminian, Armenian, answers on a postcard. First up then, let us talk about the dream team. Charlie and Bill, the king and archbishop, Stuart and Lord. Sounds like a music hall act. Stuart and Lord! Now then, in certain circles, quite niche I suspect, Lord is still something of a controversial figure. I saw some article recently extolling the virtues of his ceremonialisation. 
and then other laments that he was the man who started the destruction of the church that Cranmer built. There has also been some debate about who was really responsible for church policies of the 1630s. Was it really Lord who drove the changes in the church? Or was he simply the willing servant of his master's wishes? Or it might be quite the other way around. A picture of a king who was too busy with his art, his wife and his hunting to be really aware of what's going on, while Lord got on with it and remodelled the English church under his king's nose. Well, there is a weir media, a middle way, just like Elizabeth's church, which is, of course, the one I'm going to go for. It would seem a little odd for me to argue that Charles was a passenger in what followed, given the strength of his views that have already emerged from the start of his realm. Equally, there were times when Charles held a view about what he wanted without really understanding how you'd apply that and what it meant in practical terms, and he relied on Lord to tell him and do it. So, one example given for this is Charles's desire to see his church following the practice of the early church. The early church, I mean, in Roman times and all that. Now, ironically, that had been very much an objective of the early English reformers from the days of good King Hal. What it meant in practice, of course, was anybody's guess, really. Certainly, though, Lord chose to interpret in ways a strict Calvinist would definitively not have interpreted it. For Lord, it was all about this beauty of holiness. For the Calvinist, it was about simplicity and a direct relationship with God. So, Lord interpreted the objective for his king in his own idiom, and in this way, then, king and archbishop progressed together, partners, walking hand in hand down the beach towards the sunlight of reform while the waves lapped happily at their feet. I'm putting a lot of emphasis on William Lord, and yet I've not yet told you that George Abbott has died, or I don't think I have anyway. Oops. So here goes. George Abbott has died. OK, a bit more. George Abbott, who had been Archbishop of Canterbury since 1612, went to meet his maker in 1633. He's still a big name to this day in his hometown of Guildford, I understand. Now, he had been reassuringly Calvinist, something which reassured not only the English, but also the Scots, as it happens, which is going to be very important. He was replaced in 1633 by one William Lord, who was, of course, not reassuringly Calvinist. And the previous year, incidentally, Charles had made Richard Neal, who held similar Arminian view, the Archbishop of York. Both these eminent clerics had been censured by representatives of Charles's subjects in Parliament as enemies of the state. We have talked before, I think, about how the Puritan peers, Say and Seal, and their colleagues in the Commons had pinned their hopes on Parliament to restrain Charles's lurch Arminianwards. Well, now, Parliament was gone. So, that was the last anti-lurching device gone. Charles and Lord were off the leash. Not that Lord and Charles were twins. They worked in very different ways. As we have seen in more than one arena, Charles did not see his role as one of appeasing or reconciling opposing interests to arrive at a solution everyone could live with. His role was to lay down clear principles and make sure they were adhered to. He was admirably direct about what he expected. Now, William Lord was slightly more of a political animal in the sense that he had a feeling that sometimes progress should go more slowly or compromise be made for just for the moment or some politicking be done in the background or for not everything to be terribly obvious and direct, which is interesting 
because in a personal sense he was not particularly clever at influencing and persuading. Here is Clarendon. He did court persons too little, nor cared to make his designs and purposes appear as candid as they were, by showing them in any other means than their natural beauty and roughness, and did not consider enough what men said or were like to say of him. As a result, Lord was something of a lonely figure at court. He had a surprisingly fierce temper and was well capable of losing it, on occasion carpeting his enemies openly in Privy Council, which makes nobody your friend. He also came from a relatively lowly background, which in those days was not seen as a positive thing. And so, although not quite Norman no-mates, he would find it difficult to put a table of four together for a game of bridge, for example. But he was aware that there was something out there called public opinion. The English church was a mansion of many rooms, and it didn't do to set them all on fire at once, and care was needed not to be too overt. So, for example, Lord would put pressure on Calvinists behind the scenes to prevent them writing or preaching on pro-Calvinist themes while letting Arminians proceed. And so it seemed as though there was an even-handed policy out there, but said policy was not being applied evenly. At the same time, he remained wary of his king's ability to surprise him and wrong-foot him. Charles was perfectly capable of stepping out from behind Lord Skirts. An example was where Lord and Neil had been forced by their king to kneel in submission in the Privy Council and swear that they rejected the teachings of Arminius, just when everything seemed to be going their way. So, Lord feared being held to account if he misinterpreted his king, and one way round that was to encourage those who came forward for his favour to produce proposals that met with his own desire to advance Arminian reform. Thus, he could progress schemes without being directly associated with them, which is as truxy as a hobbit with a stolen magic ring in his pocket. Let us not suppose, however, that Lord was insincere or simply politically ambitious, hungry for power for its own sake. That would be most unfair, and by and large, his royal master agreed with his aims. Lord wanted to strengthen the church in England. He wanted to make it powerful and capable of supporting all her people. To achieve that, he wanted to rebuild the wealth of the church, reclaiming land and influence from lay patrons and improving the education, pay and status of the clergy. This was, incidentally, very much an aim shared by Calvinist and Puritan too. Much had already been done through the universities, but much more was needed. Lord was determined to promote uniformity and the proper orders and compliance in church services and worship. He fully believed that the importance of preaching in the Bible had been overemphasised to the detriment of the central role of the sacraments and the proper balance must be restored for everyone's good. Lord was a reforming bishop through and through, with the energy and vision to see it through, and to go a long way down the road to ensure compliance at a local level. Indeed, this would be part of the very problem. Under Abbott, there had been leeway, flexibility, local preference that allowed a variety of actual practices to be followed, from the fiercely godly East Anglia to the lovers of tradition and ceremony in the North. But Lord wasn't having any of that, not on your Nelly. There was a right way, there was a wrong way, a straight and a narrow, and woe betide you if you chose the wrong one. The jump would be high as a result. No, Norman no mates or not, Lord 
was blessed with having a dream team around him because as the gates of the winter pens of parliamentary supervision were thrown open, Charles had gaily galloped out, kicking his heels like a young heifer into the green, sunlit spring pastures of clerical appointments. And James's policy of maintaining a careful balance of Calvinist and anti-Calvinist bishop had entered its final death throes. Matthew Wren, a notorious Arminian, was given successive promotions to Bishop of Hereford in 1634, Norwich in 1635, Ely in 1639, a poster boy of the ceremony mongers and cathedralists, in control now of the most godly parts of the country. It would not be a comfortable fit. Episcopal offices were now dominated by anti-Calvinists, and behind them, the roles that tended to supply the bishops of the future were also stuffed with their fellows, royal chaplains, deans, headship of Oxford and Cambridge. So if you're a Calvinist, there looked to be little hope for the future either. And meanwhile, if you were just starting to climb the greasy pole of a clerical career, looking up at the bottoms of Neil and Lord at the top, it was quite clear that the way to get there was not to take a Calvinist stand on matters of ceremony or theology. So there was what one historian describes as a sort of Lordian moment, where everyone is falling over themselves to outlord Lord. The groupthink thing increasingly took over in the hierarchy. The nature of sermons at St Paul's Cross, for example, were transformed. Before 1628, all the sermons published from there took a Calvinist line. They were now abruptly replaced by dominance of anti-Calvinists. So with all that preamble and framing, what actually happened then? How did religious practice and administration change in the 30s? What were these Laudian reforms? Well, let us start with the ceremonial stuff, the most emotive of which was probably the sighting of the altar, or the communion table as the Elizabethan church would have it. Under Elizabeth, these should be put at the east end of the church and brought into the body of the chancel for communion. After all, communion was to them simply a ceremony of remembrance to be shared by all the community. For the Arminians, this was all way too rough and ready. Lord was horrified at going to churches where the communion table was covered with schoolboys' satchels and hats or parishioners using them for a business meeting. There was nothing there about the beauty of holiness. Lord, therefore, convinced Charles that this was not the way the early church would have carried on. Certainly not. And increasingly from the late 1620s, more ceremonial and formal arrangements began to be enforced, and from 1633 it seems to have become a national policy. So, altars were to be placed at the east end of the church and stay there, not go wandering around. They should be arranged north to south, and then they must be surrounded by altar rails to keep the oiks out. This was once more priestly territory only. Oh, and communion couldn't be taken standing up like grabbing a sandwich in the fields at harvest time. Communion must be taken kneeling down, head bowed. Order. Order was a thing. There's a lovely child from Cambridgeshire on Christmas Day 1638 when a dog mooched in during the sermon and while everyone was wondering what on earth the preacher was talking about he sneaked up, flapped his ears a bit and whipped the communion loaf which had been prepared and headed for the door. I can see Dylan McDog in action as we speak. He's partial to a bit of bread too and it tastes so much better when it's stolen. So of course the congregation haired after the hound which no doubt deeply added to said hound's enjoyment, and astoundingly, though, they actually managed to catch him and repatriate the loaf. The priest decided that dog saliva probably didn't add to the beauty of holiness, and communion had to be cancelled for that year. 
So look, this is a specific example of Laudian policy of introducing formality, order and ceremony into the order of service, but it was one of many. Enthusiastic clergy started replacing their wooden communion tables with grand stone altars, ornaments, sparkly candlesticks, crucifixes and plates and things started to be found proudly adorning the altar. I am put in mind of a scene in the lovely 1970 Cromwell film where Richard Harris sweeps all such ornaments and baubles from the altar of his parish church, sending them clattering to the floor, muttering something about baubles, growling, that damned archbishop, and gazing grumpily into the camera. He's one of the godly, you see. Doesn't do sparkly on altars. Now, you might think this is very petty, but the poet of the godly, John Milton, gives some idea of what it meant. The table of communion, now become a table of separation, stands like an exalted platform upon the brow of the choir, fortified with bulwark and barricado to keep off the profane touch of the laity, which is what the prelates desire, that when they have brought us back to popish blindness, we might commit to their disposal the whole management of our salvation. Altar rails offended the core belief of Calvinists in England, Scotland and all over Europe that the relationship with God was personal, not subject to the intermission of the clergy. The clergy were simply experts to teach and give guidance in reading and interpreting the scripture through preaching. All of these gestural displays, as they have been called, smacked to the godly of a return to Catholicism and the Mass and the impression was reinforced by a change in the balance between the emphasis on preaching, beloved of Calvinists, and ceremony as favoured by Arminians. Laudian policy was to crack down on unlicensed preaching, reduce the privately and community-funded lectureships that had sprung up around the country to supplement the local minister, and the sacraments instead were re-emphasised. Part of this was to enforce the strict use of the Brook of Common Prayer and the Canons of 1604, where local Calvinist-oriented ministers might have skipped a bit of the liturgy in favour of a bit of additional preaching. Wherever they could, this kind of latitude was now repressed. The liturgy of the book was the priority. It is important to note that none of this was strictly innovatory. Examples of all these changes could have been found before Charles came to the throne, such was the well width and flexibility of the English church. The difference now was how widely the same approach was being demanded and how rigorously it was being enforced. It was hard in a country the size of England, with the tools at their disposal, to make everyone dance to the same tune. The Lord and his bishops often now did a very good job in making them so boogie. Now we'll talk generally about the response to all the reforms, but to a large number of the Calvinists, not just the more radical actually, all of this was, in the words of one dour Suffolk gent, but a dance before popery. Church music was also much more encouraged, with organs and choirs, which does sound nice. And actually, by the 1630s, Calvinist opposition to music had much softened, but many objected to the condemnation by some Laudians of psalm singing as the tuneless babbling of the ignorant and irreligious. Just as an aside, this is a factoid gathered from Tim Harris's fantastic book Rebellion, and if it was an original quote, I would expect quotation marks. There are none. So I wonder, does this represent the state of psalm singing in the good professor's own church, maybe? I am intrigued to know. Anyway, Lord's reforms were not just about order and worship, they were also about structure and governance. Most would agree that too many clergymen were underpaid and the church underfunded. 
Over the half, the benefices in England and Wales were worth less than £10 a year and the vast majority were under the level of expected for a tolerable standard of living for a minister, which was about £40 a year. Meanwhile, much of the fabric of parish churches was in desperate need of investment and rebuilding as well. There was little Lord could do with much church land and tithes under the control of the laity, who therefore also had the right to set the stipend for the minister. It was too late to reappropriate church land, but pressure was applied to lay patrons to pay higher stipends, and income from church lands were raised by implementing shorter rents, rather than the three-lifetime term, which left income seriously reduced by inflation. This is without doubt stuff that did need doing. But if your local bishop is insisting on renegotiating your rental terms and hoiking them up, it's pretty easy as a tenant not to see the bigger picture and instead see your church as focusing on money rather than the salvation of your immortal soul. Despite the money problems, Lord and his bishops did manage to push forward with much church refurbishment, and it's surely impossible to find fault with that, isn't it? Though, you know, people being what they are, many of the high-profile projects were very much in the style of bling, like St Giles in the field, with decorated and painted chancel screens to keep the oiks and the nave in their place, away from the bishops and deacons in the chancel, painted cloths, multiple cherubim, virgin and child pictures. I mean, I'm partial to the odd cherub myself, but if you were a, were a whitewash person or suspicious of anything that looks like idolatry, these paintings might not square well with you. Even smaller development, like Scudamore's Abbey Door in Herefordshire, saw a grand marble altar, cloths, painted walls, screens and stained glass. A sign of new times, at very least. Another surely laudable development, pun intended, was insisting that the very high-sided box pews of the grandest of the parish be shaved down to get out of the way of everyone's line of sight to the altar. Now, as I say, surely sensible, but also likely to ruffle a few grand gentry feathers who rather liked their little comforts and privileges to be shown off in the church in front of the whole community. OK, let us take a moment's break for any sponsor messages if there have been any sponsors lovely and delicious enough to have sponsored me this week. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Okay, sit up straight, back to the grindstone. So, alongside reforms in the financing, doctrine, fabric and ceremony of the church, there were also things about the behaviour and society of course, religion wasn't just about your immortal soul, but about how you lived your life now, and indeed, the one informed the other and vice versa. Some of those firmly in the predestination camp managed to get around the worry about whether or not they were the elect, whether or not they were saved, by assuming that how they behaved now was a sign of whether God had or had not marked them for the eternal naughty step, and so it was still important to live a good life, according to the good book. Others believed the doctrine that no soul could be denied paradise if they were truly deserving of it. 
And so a well-ordered and godly society was essential. The Book of Sports was therefore a very contentious document when Charles issued it in 1633. Now, this was very much not new. Charles was reissuing a proclamation made by his dad back in 1618 with just a few tweaks. As you will remember, it had caused a fuss then, and in the increasingly tense atmosphere of the personal rule, it caused a fuss now. The words of the Book of Sports are probably written on your heart after the last time we talked about it, but if not, it is available on the inestimable History of England website. Essentially, essentially, James says that having fun in a proper, godly way on God's day is fine, as long as you have also done the godly church things first, and the activities are also proper godly as well. So, into the godly box went things like dancing, leaping, vaulting, May games, wits and ales, and against the run of play, I have to say, Morris dancing. Into the ungodly box went bear and bull baitings, and interludes, because ordinary folk tended to poke fun at the knobs in interludes. And that would never, never do. And marked out especially that greatest and rootiest of all evils, I speak, of course, as you will already have guessed, of bowling. Now, to those who firmly believed in the sanctity of the Lord's Day, the Sabbatarian types, who might often be Puritans, but not necessarily restricted to Puritans, let it be be noted, this was not the way a godly and well-ordered society worked. The Lord's Day was for the Lord, and that was that. For Charles, this was partly about a proper society, partly about not repelling people from the church by being too strict, but mainly about keeping Puritans in their box. Because by prohibiting things, Puritans were arrogating to themselves an authority about ordering society that was not in their gift in Charles's view. This was in the king's gift and in the king's gift only. Sabbatarians were once more outraged by the Book of Sports, and particularly Puritans who have their names specifically mentioned in the text as wrongdoers in this case. As in Jacobean days, not every priest rigorously enforced the requirement to read it out in church and publish it. Quite a lot ducked, even more weaved, and a minority even shimmered. But this time around, Charles was determined to see that it was implemented, and more to the point, his bishops were too, because his bishops now included very few of the more Calvinist of mind. It is a feature of the Book of Sports of 1633 that they were much more rigorously and firmly enforced than such things had been before. Once again, de facto toleration appeared to be at an end. This was also a bit confusing, because now in many cases, clergy and their parishioners were being berated in the ecclesiastical courts or in the bishops' visitations for things They'd always been doing and had done, and they'd been told were perfectly acceptable in the past. Many would have been used to bringing the communion table down into the body of the church for decades, and now suddenly there were malignants for doing so. Even the most conformists now felt not quite sure whether they were or were not doing the right thing. Which does, however, bring us to the point that it is almost Inevitably the case that plenty of people were perfectly happy with Lord's reforms. But what they did was to make people choose. 
A parish priest who fervently believed the Sabbath should be rigorously observed and had always told his congregation so was now forced to choose. Did he obey his conscience or did he obey his bishop and his king? One historian very wisely observed, for historians can on occasion be wise, I have found. One of the problems with historical sources, they said, is that the big mouths, the gobby of mind and spirit, the moaners, the baddies, the fractious and the generally arsy, make much more impact on the historical record than the compliant, the happy, the content. After all, no one gets hauled in front of the judges for spending a quiet evening in with the mum playing tiddlywinks. No one mass-produces incendiary pamphlets on the values of relaxing quietly and doing what you're told. And while everything sort of matters, nothing matters terribly. Nope. By and large, it's the activist, the whiner, the malcontent, the passionately opinionated that produces the pamphlets, shouts at you while you're doing your shopping, waves the banner and glues themselves to items of civil engineering, drapes the banner of cultural revolution around your neck. So, when looking back in time, it's a bit difficult to know exactly what most ordinary people thought the honest Joe and honest Joe of society, one with an E, one without. I feel a bit the same way about history telling, actually, while we're on it. Everyone's out to tell you the latest story of outrage and horror, the untold story of the great injustice that was X. Come and see the violence in the system. Why? You know what I mean? The headline, come and hear the untold story of how communities rubbed along pretty well together for hundreds of years, or wow, the history they don't want you to know about, nothing notable happened for decades, just doesn't sell copy. Ah, well, anyway, rant over. It's difficult to know, basically, how widespread support might have been for what Charles and Lord were doing. They were not unprincipled, heartless beasts imposing an alien religion on a hapless people. They were, firstly, doing what they thought was right for Charles's people. Secondly, they probably really imagined that they were simply returning the church to its origins. This meant to the Elizabethan settlement, but more than that, to the early church, as she was apparently originally practised. So although I have spoken of Lord as a reformer of the church, don't let him hear you say that, because this fiery little son of the fair city of Reading would give you a sharp end of his tongue. It was the Puritans who were the innovators. He would thunder almost to the point of chunder. And then there would have been plenty who liked either some of the changes, or if not necessarily all of them, sort of binary thing, on or off, black or white, tigers or saints, county or forest. For some, the return of choral music would have been a boon, or a bit of grandeur in the paints would have been most nice. Maybe a bit of ceremony and formality was your thing, and surely it's churlish to object to a tadge of stained glass on a Monday morning. And a bit of leaping and dancing on Sunday afternoon, especially dancing the Morris. Well, we work every other day of the week to keep body and soul together, and not with much margin either, so surely the war lord wouldn't begrudge us time for a few hours off. One of the features of the civil wars, incidentally, without wanting to offer up any plot spoilers, is the quiet love of the words and forms and cadence of Cranmer's masterpiece, The Book of Common Prayer, that will run like a mighty hidden stream under the bedrock of English society and burst out like a clear spring on the hillside of the Restoration. I'd like to bet also that there were more than a few sniggers in church seeing the disappointed and out-of-joint noses of the parish bigwigs as they arrived at their much-reduced boxed pews, always good to see the favoured cut down to size a bit. 
On the same grounds, though, just as many people would find something to enjoy in the reforms, so pretty much everyone would find something to irritate them. There were the gentry in their pews, having your lease renegotiated. The annoyance of intervention from outside the parish community, visitations coming in, enforcing the rules of outsiders, bypassing the local church wardens, wiping out local compromises and customs that had helped lubricate the turning of the wheels of the parish, all arrogantly banished by the establishment. Also, there was just a general divisive thing going on here too, which all these changes exacerbated. This was particularly true of Puritan areas, where Puritan townsmen and clergy had worked together already to enforce rules on things like social behaviour, drunkenness and the like. And obviously, sometimes people objected to this kind of tyranny. One bright spark, for example, took it on himself to sneak out in the middle of the night and release people from the stocks. One of the things Puritans were particularly good at was raising money for the maintenance of the poor, but didn't often hear a good word about the much-reviled Puritan but their concern and energy to raise poor funding was often very impressive. But, of course, there's a level at which people begin to object to being pressured into dipping into their pockets. Into these already conflicted worlds, then, might come a sense of support for those that disliked such an environment, disliked yet another round of change and enforcement. And make no mistake, Laudians were every bit as aggressive and demanding as any Puritan, so... Let me take you to Rickmansworth at Hertfordshire, and as some of you will know, to walk the streets of Rickmansworth to this day is to feel the fire of revolution in your bones. Just kidding you. Anyway, in 1638 in Rickmansworth, they got a new church warden, Mr Alden, a lover of Lord and his altar rails, who boasted that he would make the Puritans to come up the middle alley on their knees up to the rails. In Essex, a minister, Richard Drake, refused to let a hundred of his parishioners take communion because they would not come up to the rail. Meanwhile, objectors would fight back with small acts of rebellion against the rules, keeping hats on in church or sitting down when supposed to be standing. Childish, but deeply satisfying. The message I am trying to sort of subliminally trying to give you, just to make it, well, sort of liminal, is that you don't have to be a Puritan to object to the new rules. Laudians could be every bit as cussed and in your face as the fiercest Puritan, and the reforms introduced conflict and division into many, maybe most, communities. So that's all very well, and I hope you are sagely nodding your head at my most worthy sagacity, but look, there's no getting around it. It's your Calvinist, particularly the radical wing of the Calvinist party, the Puritan, that is most inflamed. Obviously, they would be the most upset by all of the changes I have outlined. Charles and Lord might have gaily imagined they, they were the Conservatives, but for the Calvinists, this was utter tripe. And they knew that because just a few years ago, they were doing things which everyone seemed to agree with, for which now they were being persecuted all of a sudden. But there is an elephant in the room, and the elephant wears a mitre. As I have frequently explained, and would not try to belabor the point too much more, Charles's head would explode if you said he was anything other than a staunch defender of the Church of England. William Lord, the same. But much as they may say this, do what I say, not what I do. Calvinists of many colours found the evidence a little bit difficult to believe. I mean, all this ceremonial stuff, well, it's just a bit Catholic light, isn't it? 
creeping popery, a softening up process until the big one. And the Arminians, it had to be said, had a different, more sympathetic approach to the Catholic Church than did your average Calvinist. So for the latter, the Pope was the Antichrist. I mean, not just any old Antichrist with Antichrist-ness, not just against the proper church and a bit naughty and all that, the actual living, breathing Antichrist whose job it was to drag you to hell now. That Antichrist. Arminians didn't believe that. I mean, they thought the Pope was an abomination, don't get me wrong. No one would give him so much as a bag of pork scratchings, let alone the rough end of a pineapple, but he wasn't the actual Antichrist. And the Catholic Church, again... It was a real religion. I mean, it was wrong, obviously, deeply inferior to the beauty and purity of the reformed English church, but it was on the right Christian field. To the modern ear, this is all a lot more pleasant-sounding than the violent detestation of the English and Scottish Calvinist, but to most of the English, it was terrifying. Catholicism was not just poorly advised in their view, it was drag me to hell time and the architect of tyranny that sought to destroy their society and tear it up by the very roots and water the soil with their blood. I don't think I'm overdoing it, but do say if I am. For Lord and Charles, sensibly you have to think, they remained as concerned as was Elizabeth to bring as many English Catholics back into the English church, and so were concerned to make their language more conciliatory and the church more attractive. It is a worthy aim, especially given that Catholics couldn't be much more than 1-2% to of the population by this stage. But like many worthy aims, the road to hell was paved with good intentions, and anyway, it was an absolute epic fail, because as a result, English Catholics simply patted each other on the back and celebrated, ah, that the English church was coming back to being the true church again. One Catholic was delighted at Lord's elevation to Canterbury, predicting that things would every day go better and better for the Catholics. The Pope even offered Lord a cardinal's hat, twice, which is delightful. But it didn't make Arminian claims to be good prots very convincing when a Catholic priest could write that the English were doing all the right things, exalting the cult of the holy virgins and the saints and decking out their temples with images and use ceremonies not very different from ours. I mean, I ask you, if Catholics were thinking this, what surprise that Calvinists were absolutely beside themselves that their own leaders appeared to be destroying their church from the ground up. Or Lambeth Palace down, as it were, I suppose. Nor did the king's personal life help. As it happens, Charles was in no way averse to a bit of good, honest Catholic persecution. Recusancy fines steadily increased until they reached about 20,000 quid. Religious persecution, if done right, could be a nice little learner. But from the outside... The court looked like something of a hotbed of Catholic sympathy. Charles, of course, had a Catholic queen, and Henrietta Maria was not shy about promoting her Catholicism. She didn't try to hide it. She flaunted it. Catholic services at Somerset House were widely attended by a host of people, both within and without the household, in a way of which Charles disapproved and periodically restricted, but somehow kept going. And people noticed. The king himself has a wife recusant, why then could he not be one, said an alderman of the town of Appleby, which was once the county town of which ancient county? That's a quick quiz question slipped in there. Answers on a postcard. There were a number of high-profile conversions at court, a number of privy councillors suspected with some justice of being crypto-Catholics. And despite all Charles's words about defending the Church of England even to his death, genuinely felt words at that, 
the unusual extremity of Charles's views about what the practice and doctrine of the Church of England was made his words appear simply dishonest. And then there was the fact that Charles very clearly enjoyed the style of the Catholics who surrounded his wife. He was something of a fan of Father George Conn, for example, the current papal agent. Conn gave the king paintings and sculptures. He was a cultured, intelligent conversationalist, made himself pleasant to all. What's not to like? Even Lord gave him a friendly tour around the Bodleian. Court wooed his company. He was seen around in town in a carriage with the papal insignia, once carrying Charles in it. Charles opened negotiations with the papal curia. Again, to the modern ear, all this toleration and talking seems rather welcome. But we're in the 1630s here. Charles needed to be super careful about his actions in this area and consider how it would look to the outside world. In his own mind, he was content that his commitment to the church was firm. He expected that to be enough for his subjects and for them to just accept it, not ask questions. It is another aspect of his political stone deafness, his tin ear for politics, and he would continue to be amazed that people saw him as an innovator. I have an image of Charles as a premiership footballer, protesting his innocence when given a booking, arms wide, incredulous expression. What, me? The very clear impression then to many of his subjects was that Charles and his bishops were much more concerned with the threat of Puritanism than they were about the dangers of popery. And Charles and Lord's definition of whom the term Puritan included was by now wildly broad. Henry Parker would write in 1641 that by an enlargement of the name, the world was full of nothing but Puritans. For beside the Puritan in church policy, there were now added Puritans in religion, Puritans in state and Puritans in morality. How all of this would play out in detail would be complicated and difficult to judge. As I say, there were very probably many who were either happy to conform or were in sympathy with the changes, but there can have been relatively few who did not find something to trouble them across the country, Religious tensions and social friction were tightened and sensitivities rubbed raw. Now, for some, this was all too much. Although some migration across the seas to North America or to the Caribbean had been going on since the days of James I, and of course plenty of it to Ireland, the 1630s has acquired the title of the Great Migration because more numbers than ever before set out to find a new life. And escaping these changes in religion was one of the major reasons why. And it is to that which we will turn next time. The first episode will be about the world they were about to enter, the world of North America before the English came. That will be in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your comments and all that sort of thing. Thank you particularly to my members. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>